last 20 years have seen an explosion of cool tech, shiny digital apps, and progressive business models, but not all have migrated successfully to traditional banking. Have we lingered too long in the glittering halls of cutting edge? Have we forgotten the real goals of reliable, trustworthy, and functional banking? Is it time to find the real magic in building a bank that works? Welcome to Functional Banking Magic, a podcast that aims to tell the stories of the magic in a bank that works. Hello, and welcome back to Functional Banking Magic. As always, I am Liz Lumley of The Banker, and today we are going to be learning lessons from the pandemic. I'm sure most of us are are very happy to leave the era of the pandemic behind, but there are still lessons to be learned. And I'm joined by two wonderful leaders in the financial services space today, Sacha Romanovich, who is CEO of Fair for All finance and Catherine Rudder, Group Ambassador for Yorkshire and the Humber, Director, Group Customer Inclusion at Lloyd's Banking Group. Hello, ladies, both of you. Hi, Liz. Yeah, hi. Wonderful. So as I mentioned before, we're going to be talking about lessons learned from the pandemic. And the the, the topic for this podcast came from a report uh, that came out from Fair for All Finance, which also included research from Lloyd's Banking Group, um, as well as NatWest and the Yorkshire Building Society, which highlighted the positive impact um, on the cust- uh, on customer support banks provided during the pandemic. And it calls for some measures to be reintroduced or modified to help people navigate the rising cost of living. Um, the research found that many of the lessons learned can support financial institutions in the way they treat their customers and help people in vulnerable circumstances weather current and future financial storms. So this is a really, really interesting topic for a lot of banks right at the moment. So Sasha, maybe I'll maybe I'll start with you and then, then I'll, I'll move on to, to Catherine. I wanted to start way, well, actually, I'd take that back. I'm going to start with Catherine first and then we'll, we'll go to, to Sasha because I'd love to hear the bank point of view. I want to kind of go back to those days uh, in 2020 before the pandemic hit all of us, um, kind of right at the beginning when not not many people knew the impact COVID would have, how long it would last, how long it would, you know, how global it would be. It, was there any sort of playbook that banks drew upon to prepare for what was to come at all? Catherine, I don't know if you want to yeah, no, so, um, and I am the customer inclusion director now, but during 2020 and during COVID, I actually managed all of the call centres for the bank, so I was right in the middle of all of this, and we do have playbooks, so we have playbooks for weather incidents, we have playbooks for big cyber incidents or outages from an IT point of view, etc., and, and for us, it was almost taking those experiences that we've had. So personally, I've gone through situations where we've had whole call centres closed down because of snow, for example, where no one could get to the centres. And we've then had to look at, OK, how do we manage the customer experience? Because as a large organisation based across the UK, we've got millions of customers. So we've got over 26 million customers. And for us, it's always the question is, OK, so how can we continue to serve the customer? And that is always at the heart. So we looked at the playbooks that we'd got. And we started to, in fairness, we started to use some of the things that we already had. 
So we already knew that we could do different things with telephony. So we highlighted straight away the fact that actually, if you were working in the NHS, then the big thing that we were hearing at the time was that you were working unbelievable hours and that you really would not have enough time to be able to do your shopping or to do your banking. And so we set up a specific NHS telephony line, which meant that those people who rang in, who worked for the NHS, could get through straight away. So they weren't having to wait in any queues and they would be able to do the business. And that went down extremely well. We also did the same with the over 70s because we suddenly started to realise that actually they were too scared to go into a face-to-face situation. And again, how could we help people who perhaps had never used telephony before? And some of those methods we've used before in different situations, but it really helped us, I think, having some of those playbooks. But let's face it, COVID still came up with instances that none of us could have predicted at all is, and that we had to look at completely differently. Mm. But, but before I move on to Sasha, I just maybe had another follow up question on that, which is, you know, often in, in normal times, incumbent banks get accused of not moving very fast. And I think yeah. everyone was really impressed with just how quickly banks kind of stepped up to the mark when it when it when the you know, it looked like how much support customers needed and and society at whole. I mean, was it just it just, you know, what kind of drove that speed? Was it just a. Uh, the, the what what was needed at the time? I think yeah, I think I think it was what was needed. I think we've got um, a brilliant senior management team who were who know how to prioritize, and at that moment in time said. This is all about serving our customers. This is all about thinking about how do we get our colleagues through this situation. And actually, we did a massive reprioritization exercise. So we actually looked at what is everybody doing in a day-to-day job? And we reprioritized it and said, this is going to get us through COVID. If it's not, then what's the risk of actually putting that on hold so that we could actually move resource to focus on the real things at the real time? And that, for me, is something that, you know, happens once in a lifetime in anybody's work. But the fact that we recognised that that was needed and we got the direction from the board, et cetera, to do that was the thing that made the real difference for us and helped us then to be very agile. So, so I'll move on to Sasha now, and maybe this came out of some of the research that you guys did. I mean, in terms of uh, a lot of people were put on furlough, you know, but businesses were were struggling during the pandemic. I mean, what what was that? How did banks kind of try to analyze how much support would be needed? You know, and, and what were some of those ser- services that that customers were really looking for during the time? Um, I think that the the critical thing is, you know, banks for some time have been spending time and effort really understanding different types of vulnerability, the pressures on their customers. And I think, as Catherine said, what this whole sort of crisis allowed was a real prioritization of accelerating the work on understanding customers on equipping frontline staff to understand how to deal with customers in financially vulnerable circumstances and their needs and to accelerate often project programs that were already in the pipeline but were able to be delivered a lot more quickly because they were able to put time and effort on it and you know stepping back on it Liz, you know, from when we've spoken before, 
in terms of when we talk about financially vulnerable circumstances, there are about 17 and a half million people in financially vulnerable circumstances. And I think banks are very attuned in understanding customers as to well, what, what are the likely challenges going to be? You know, are they going to be able to access, you know, everything from cash to being able to, you know, speak to somebody to be able to, you know, access their savings or pay in deposits or all of those sorts of things. Um, costs, you know, frankly, you know, even when people are on furlough, if their household income had suddenly dropped by 20%, then the margins on which they were operating were suddenly under pressure. And so what could banks do to support and smooth on that? Um, flexibility. I think is something that, you know, banks already knew from the work they've been doing on vulnerability, which is that, you know, if people do get this sort of life shock and event, then actually that early intervention to provide flexibility is what can enable people to, um, you know, manage through that situation rather than being caught into sort of the whirlpool of a spiral into a much more difficult situation. And I think the final thing that I think banks were really good at was actually redeploying people to be able to manage really good communication with their customers. Um, you know, I think it was really interesting that 83.6% of the customers in our survey said they felt really happy with the, how their banks had treated them. And a lot of that was because banks, rather than waiting for people to contact them, had actually used their data analysis to, un, to identify people who might be in challenging situations and it got in touch with them. So I think there are some real positives there but they they come from the fact that you know this journey of understanding vulnerability and people in vulnerable circumstances wasn't new but mm. covid made it the most important thing to focus on which i think builds on what catherine said mm. so what do you, i mean what do you think kind of it, it's hard to imagine how do you think society would have fared during covid if if many of these message uh, measures were not enacted uh, what, what state do you think we'd be in right right now? Shall I shall I start on that one? And I know Catherine Catherine will have comments to build on that. I think the first one that I pick up may 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 or may not surprise listeners, which is actually the impact on people's mental health, um, the uncertainty and the worry. You know, I think we can probably all go back to that moment, maybe when the prime minister was announcing the lockdown and and being back in that moment, watching that television, thinking, oh, gosh, this is serious. What's it going to mean for us? And, you know, being in that place where suddenly, you know, nothing was certain, nothing was sure. And there was that real fear and worry. And so I think that the the immediate actions that the bank took banks took in terms of measures like forbearance, et cetera, it, it was able to give some of those little anchors of certainty that, okay, I'm not going to lose my home. There is something in place. And, I, and Catherine, I think it'd be interesting you can pick it up that I think, you know, what, what was found was that actually quite a lot of people early on who were taking up forbearance measures didn't actually necessarily end up needing, needing them, but actually just the very fact of them being available helped to reduce that sort of mental worry and load. So I think that impact on sort of almost the nation's mental health is something that is 
is worth paying attention to of how much certainty and anything you can do to give someone in a difficult situation certainty, how much that matters. I think the other aspect of it is I think that we definitely would have seen a considerably higher number of people falling into a debt spiral um, where they were not making payments, falling into arrears, falling into, you know, some of the measures that, um, you know, usually sort of take place on that and potentially, you know, ultimately actually potentially losing their homes as a consequence. Because I think that's the other thing that we see is that, you know, things can, um, things can escalate very quickly when someone falls behind. So I think that those are the two things that have been really positive. And it's, it's one of the things that I think probably loops back into, you know, what have we seen post that is actually, there was an expectation there'd be this massive increase in arrears and that hasn't materialized yet. Now, obviously we're now in another, another much longer standing crisis, but I think that's testament to the difference that, um, that it made. And, you know, in terms of the survey again, that we did, um, 76% felt that the support had positively impacted their financial situation. So pretty overwhelming. And that was a sample of over 1400 people as well as um, significant number of face-to-face interviews. Wow. Yeah, I know that 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 uh, that uh, impact of, of of money on on mental health is is it's not a hard concept to to understand. It's it's interesting. So, Catherine, I'd, I'd love to I'd love to hear your views. Yeah, no, I think and th- I think what it showed us as well is that financial organisations already have a lot of the tools that are needed. So if we think about payment holidays, payment holidays are something that customers can come and talk to us about at any time, not just during COVID or a cost of living crisis or what have you. And so for us, the fact that actually we were talking to customers about the potential of using a payment holiday and people were taking them and to Sasha's point, sometimes then realizing I actually didn't need to do this, but it gave me a little bit of a buffer during that uncertain period. Just helped people mentally, I think, to understand what they were going to do. It bought them some time to understand what was going to happen. And then at the end of the payment holiday, what we found was people just started paying again. And actually, from their own personal point of view, it's a real positive impact. I think we can't forget you know, the bounce back loan scheme for businesses. There are some businesses out there who would have gone under if that hadn't have happened. And again, that was the banks working with the government together, collaborating on, we all knew that we had to do something here. And I think that was the power of actually everybody coming together and and agreeing on what was needed. But one of the things that we actually um, did that was the most impactful was we did outbound calling to older customers And I think it really showed probably a sad part of of what's happening at the moment, which is there are a lot of lonely people out there who possibly don't need to go to the bank, if they're honest, but probably have got into a routine of going to the bank for someone to talk to. Mm. And so actually allowing our branch colleagues who, because of, you know, there could be a branch with 10 people in and six we're at home with COVID and so we couldn't physically open the branch, but those colleagues would go to the branch and they would ring out and speak to some of those older customers. And sometimes it was the only person they were speaking to on a weekly basis. 
And they've made some connections with some of those customers that were amazing, to be honest. And again, I think we're life-saving, if I'm honest. Mm. Um, so it's that, I think it really showed us the fact that, you know what, we've got some of these tools already, you know, interest-free overdrafts, payment holidays, etc. We know how to, exactly to Sasha's point, we know how to switch resources to whichever is the channel that needs them. So it was definitely telephony. So we moved a thousand colleagues um, from the branch side of things to become telephony operators because that's how people were contacting us. But that human contact, um, and it can be over the phone, it doesn't have to be face-to-face, can still be so important. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a, that, that, that's a whole other podcast looking at yeah. you know, yeah. the, the role, you know, having a physical presence in, in people's everyday lives. But, it, you know, it's interesting. One of the, one of the difficulties, I think, of people's mental health with, with COVID was, especially in the beginning, no one quite knew when it would end. Mm. It was this, you know, an, an uneasy, you know, wary look into the future. We're now kind of coming out of it and with with another crisis. This high, interest rates are still high. Inflation is high, but maybe coming down and 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 uh, cost of living is, is talked about a lot. I mean, it's, I, part of the report was about how some of the lessons from the pandemic could be continued um, and and repurposed. I mean, what what are some of the specific lessons that are are being used now for this new <laughs> the new crises that we're we're in the middle of? Yeah, I'm happy to kick off on that one, Sasha, and then you can join in. So for me, the biggest one is to that we are now really challenging ourselves. Um, on issues that in the past we would have said, you know, financial, everybody listening to this podcast will know, financial organisations have got lots of regulatory requirements that we have to meet, and that's really, really important. But sometimes regulatory requirements can be used as a reason for not doing something as well. And I think within COVID, all of that went away. We kind of said, but what is definitely the right thing we should be doing at this point? And how do we work with the regulator, with the government to bring out a whole new product or service that is needed by the customers, rather than just saying this doesn't fit with what we should be doing? That taught us loads of lessons. And so we're constantly using that on a daily basis now to really challenge ourselves to say it's not good enough just to say, actually, regulatory, we can't do that. If there is a real powerful reason why we should be doing it then we should be challenging we should be challenging the regulator and we should be looking at ourselves and saying as senior managers are we not prepared to take a risk because if that will help the customer and particularly if it stops the customer from suffering material harm it's the right thing to do that's what we should be doing it's a complete change of culture for a lot of organizations but I think COVID has given us such tangible examples of where we did that and you know what the regulator and the customers all went brilliant thank you that was the right thing to do but it's really allowing us I think to think outside the box a lot more than we probably would have done before if we're honest Hmm. And I think I'd, I'd sort of build, build, build on what Catherine's saying is that I think that, you know, I, I spend a lot of time speaking to people in Catherine's role within mainstream financial services institutions. And so, you know, the, the ideas and the insight are there in abundance. And I think sometimes it's being able to really within a big financial institution to actually 
like she says, to sort of overcome sort of things that could be barriers and turn them into positives. Well, actually, we can. And so I think that what COVID did was it actually provided loads of evidence of not only what was possible within the regulatory framework and within banks, et cetera, to be able to mobilize things quickly, but also the business benefit of doing that. And, you know, if you look at financial institutions, particularly retail financial institutions, you know, customer acquisition and customer retention is actually the lifeblood. You know, if you can if you can bring down that cost of acquiring customers and reduce the attrition, then in your business model that works um, works really well. And so, so I think sort of showing the evidence of well, actually, short term it could look like if we do an early intervention to give these people a low interest, you know, move them onto a lower interest loan or waive some charges or do some forbearance. In the short term, that could look like that's PL damaging. Um, what you've now got is this wealth of evidence to show, and actually this type of early intervention can really, you know, make sure that we're getting in place sort of upstream and helping those customers to really be great customers going forward into the future. And I don't know, Catherine, if you'd agree, but I think that's what I'm seeing in quite a lot of banks is that now ideas that pre-pandemic would have been maybe really quite hard to mobilize in financial institutions in response to a cost of living crisis, people are now able to move those things forward in a way that's um, really much more agile. Oh, totally. And I think, you know, Lloyd's purpose is helping bring prosper. And we don't believe that people can prosper unless they are financially educated and understand and have got some financial capability. And we've got a role to play in that. So it's really helped us to challenge ourselves to say, what is our role to enable people to understand how to use digital, for example? So, you know, we set up a, help, a digital helpline which will train people how to turn a laptop on if they need that. It will teach them how to book a doctor's appointment or how to look um, at you know, a comparison website to get the cheapest deals, because actually that will help the whole of the country um, to be able to grow and, and to prosper, et cetera. So I think it's really shown us that we don't need to stick to uh, what we've done for the past few years. We can actually branch out and it will help everybody. I mean, all, all of these the, these measures are really, really cut to the heart of, you know, the, the role banks have in society. But have, 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 the, have the, per, the percentage of vulnerable customers, have, have they increased over the years? Are there more people in these types of situations or, or is this just a new, you know, a, a better strategies to, to help? Yeah, so I don't think, I wouldn't say that they've increased. And when we look at our um, segments of vulnerable customers, there's good reasons for that. And um, I think our knowledge of them has increased and improved. So we've now got more data than we've ever had before. We now, through the help of, of teams like Sashes, et cetera, have got more research on these pockets of customers, et cetera. So we wouldn't really have understood before which parts of the country really needed help and support on particular types of vulnerabilities. We wouldn't really before have, have got into that, you know, the depths of it. Whereas now we've got Sasha and the team who will come and talk to us about various aspects 
that will then we can then overlay onto our customer base and go so how can we help them you know what is the proportion of our customers that do that but I don't think it's necessarily that there's more vulnerable customers I think there's a lot it still goes back to Sasha's first point which is a lot of customers um, don't want to say they've got money worries and also don't like to say they're vulnerable so, you know, it, it, in the past when we've waited for customers to almost tell us that they're vulnerable, then actually we've been waiting a long time. Now we've got the data and the algorithms where we can actually look at their activity and we can look at their age and we can look at various things and we can actually determine whether there is a potential for them to be vulnerable. And that helps us then when we're actually dealing with them as well. But it's still one of those topics that a lot of people may have a need um, which is why we, we actually to a customer wouldn't talk about it as vulnerability. We would say, is there something different we need to do to help you to enable you to do your banking? And we call it a support need. And it might be that you just need somebody to take a little bit more time with you because you've got older and, and, and you need to actually um, spend longer over different transactions. It can be lots of different things. But I personally don't think that the percentage has increased, but I'm sure Sasha can uh, answer that one. Yeah, I, I think there are there are sort of two ways to answer it, because when you look at um, the, the financial. Um, gosh, where am I going? Um, when, when I when I when I when when you look at the FCA data um, and, you know, how they define vulnerability, you have these four different four different areas, which is the um, life events which hit you 20% of people I think in the last year have had a life event a job loss or a bereavement a relationship breakdown um, that really affects them um, people were living with mental or physical health 7% of the UK population um, affected by those people with low financial resilience there are 14 million people with less than 100 pounds in savings and then people with low financial capability and you know that goes into the whole really the sort of new numeracy capability that there are about 20 million people who've got the numeracy skills of a 12 year old child so so those underlying dynamics haven't shifted and you'd probably say that in total there are about 14 and 14 million people that fall into um those characteristics of vulnerability. The thing that is changing now in the cost of living crisis, and we say in total there are about 17 and a half million people in financial vulner financially vulnerable circumstances. The, the additional bit, the additional three, three and a half million, are what we're calling the squeezed and sliding. And so these are people who maybe have actually been in a fairly okay financial position, but with the combination of the cost of living crisis and particularly with the mortgage shift are in as are moving into a space where what was manageable expenditure is tipping into not so much and debts that you know they may have got with a number of different providers that did seem okay and now actually proving really challenging and so that's where we're we, we've actually got some specific additional dormant assets funding for us to support two pilots to really start to address those customer groups. So one is looking at, you know, if people have accrued quite a bit of debt, particularly with higher cost providers. Is there an early stage intervention while they can still help themselves to actually consolidate that debt onto a more managed plan at a lower interest rate before they have to, you know, before you, they get to the stage of more formal debt solutions? And we've 
looked at the development of that with um, with Step Change, who obviously spend a lot of time with people in debt and how to get them out of the spiral. And the other one that we're looking at is um, a pilot of a no interest loan scheme, which is looking at where individuals, you know, might need support to, you know, fix a car so they can take that job take that job um a deposit for a nursery place so that they can take that job so a lot of them are enabling ones in terms of stepping stones but where on affordability they might not have been able to um afford the interest so so we're sort of responding to that shift in terms of need by the next phase of innovation and um for any for anyone listening to this we're really keen for partners to work with us on mobilizing that at scale and we're in discussions with quite a few of the larger banks at the moment so i'm hopeful that we can get that mobilized even quicker as we move forwards wonderful wonderful we'll we'll put we'll make sure we have the the link in the in the in the blurb for the podcast as well um Lovely. We'll, we'll have, uh, this has been a fascinating conversation, but we're, we're, we're getting, we're getting to the end. Um, is there, I mean, is that what, what's next? Any, any final, final comments on, on what, what's next on the, the lessons learned from the pandemic? I think the, the big one for, for me is that um, we've learned that we can't solve every problem <laughs> um, and that customers are becoming more and more diverse and their problems are more and more diverse. And so we are now um, looking to say, okay, so who are the experts in other things and how do we partner with people more? So that we do, I think in the past, we always thought we've got to solve every single problem and then you end up not doing that. We're just launching into a strategic partnership with Citizens Advice Bureau because what we've identified with a lot of uh, our customers is that the big problem they've got is income maximisation and actually there's a lot of people out there who are not claiming the benefits that they should be claiming and that's why they're then to Sasha's point going into money problems but actually what you can claim grants wise benefits wise can change from region to region in the country and so how on earth would you ever train up a group of colleagues to be able to do that well citizens advice bureau have got those people and so we're working with them where where we'll actually pay for advisors to be able to help our customers on that aspect it's that you know it's us accepting that we aren't going to be able to solve everything and then finding that perfect partner, I think is the big thing that we need to keep building on now and just working with more and more people. Wonderful. Thank, thank you both of you. I know we're, we're running out of time, but I want to thank both uh, Sasha and Catherine for a really fascinating discussion. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Functional Banking Magic, which runs monthly out of The Banker. You can listen to this podcast on thebanker.com Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcast fix. If you would like to be a guest on Functional Banking Magic, you can contact Liz Lumley at elizabeth.lumley at ft.com.